calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook of The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. The Rookie is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash the rookie. Game 4, Ionath Krakens 1 and 2, at Sky Demolition 0 and 3. Quith irradiated conference standings. Tied for first with records of 3 and 0, the Glory Warpigs, the Wittok Pioneers. Tied for third with records of 2 and 1, Sheb Stalkers, Orbiting Death. Tied for fifth with records of 1 and 2, Big Diggers, Grontak Hydras, Ionath Krakens, Quith Survivors, and Woo Wall Crawlers. And in last place with a record of 0-3, the Sky Demolition. With the touchback hovering in orbit, the shuttle flew Quentin and the other rookies down to Ionath City. This time, however, when they got out, there were Quith workers and Quith leaders dressed in white uniforms. A red line glowed on the roof of the Kraken's building. Players, please line up on the red line, said a blue-furred quith leader. Quentin lightly elbowed Yasud. What's this all about? It's a customs check, Yasud said. Quith system police. Don't worry about it. League rules apply in the Concordia just like they do everywhere else in the galaxy. The customs guys can't touch you, so whatever you're carrying, they can't do a thing. Quentin looked down the line and saw Shyat the Thick with his bulging backpack. He then looked at the other players and saw that several of them carried a bag of some sort. Yasud held a small satchel. Quentin didn't want to know what was inside. They stood on the red line with the other rookies. The blue-furred quith leader walked down the line, looking at each one of them in turn. Two white-uniformed workers slid a grav cart into the shuttle. I am Kotot the Observer, the leader said. My team will be checking you each time you come back from out-system. I'm sure nobody here is smuggling anything, right? Yasud started laughing, his curly beard jiggling in time. Yes, it is also very funny. No explosives, no weapons. Quentin stared at the little leader. Did he detect sarcasm in the alien's voice? Kotop said nothing else, just stared, his one eye a deep shade of black. The workers came out of the shuttle. No explosives, no weapons, one of them said to Kotop. You may all go, Kotop said. He sounded disgusted. 
We're in trouble, Okor said. Despite the fact that every Krakens player was crammed into the central meeting room, Hokor didn't need volume to be heard. Nobody made a sound. There had been some joking and laughing and boasting as the players filtered out of their respective locker rooms and into the central area, but all of that faded when Hokor used his holopen to decorate the far wall with three large, glowing orange marks. The marks were the number one, a dash, and the number two. One and two. We're a losing team. A losing team. How does that sound to you? No one answered. Tweety, how does that sound to you? Sounds like I'd rather eat a poop sandwich, coach. Right, Hokor said. So why did we allow the Pioneers to throw for 340 yards on us when we only sacked Adrian once? Tweety said nothing. Berea, Hokor said to the right cornerback, who immediately began to tremble. What number do you like more, one and two, or 340 yards passing? Berea said nothing. Instead, she fell on the floor and lay flat, trembling like a damaged moth. And you, Barnes, how does it feel to be on your first losing team? Humiliating, coach. And you, Kilo Yoet, I've got some numbers for you, too. Which do you like better, one and two, or five sacks? Five sacks. The key said nothing. Do you realize that in one game, we went from allowing the fewest sacks in the conference to allowing the second most? Do you realize that you and your brethren on the offensive line are now the second worst unit in the quith-irradiated conference? Kiloyoet let out a growl, but that was all. Hokor hit a button, and the one and two vanished. He wrote three new symbols. O and three. This is the record of the Sky Demolition. They are the worst team in the conference. If they beat us, then by default, we are the worst team in the conference. If you think you feel bad now, imagine how you will feel if you lose to them. Hokor paused dramatically. A deathly silence filled the locker room. He cleared the numbers again. Three names flashed up on the screen. Brady Antonabi, San Mateo, and Yala the Biter. The holo tank flashed two pictures. A tall, blonde-haired human frozen in mid-throw and a sprinting Sklorno. Both were dressed in the uniforms of the Sky Demolition. Light purple leg armor, deep purple jersey with light purple numbers trimmed in white, and deep purple helmets with three white stripes down the center. Brady Antonabi is a second-year quarterback having a surprisingly good year, despite the Demolition's record. In three games, he has seven touchdown passes and has run for two more. Four of those touchdown passes have gone to San Mateo. Antonabi has also given up five interceptions. He's thrown for 812 yards, 260 of which have gone to San Mateo. We are going to stop that combination. There is no alternative. Hokor hit a button. The pictures faded away, replaced by a moderate-sized Quith Warrior. Yala the Biter is fast, perhaps the fastest linebacker in the conference. He is faster than John Tweedy. He is faster than Virac the Mean. He has four sacks on the season, along with two interceptions and 17 tackles. He is the demolition's biggest defensive threat. He also has six unnecessary roughness penalties, three for late hits on the quarterback. Last week, he was thrown out of the game for fighting. In week one, he killed Princeton, kick returner for the Big Diggers, on a clean hit. 
Last week, he severed the leg of the wall crawler's tight end, ending the human's career. If the offensive line plays as poorly as they did against the Pioneers, I suspect our quarterbacks will be slanted off the field. Hocor cleared the pictures. The room remained quiet. The Sky Demolition is not a deep team. If we stop those three, we win. I don't care about the Tier 2 tournament anymore. All I care about is the Sky Demolition. This game is all that matters to us. Let's practice like we want to win back our honor. Quentin felt the change in the locker room. There was no yelling, no pushing, no testosterone-oriented boasting, but the air had changed nonetheless. Okor's quiet speech had affected them all, himself included. Quentin had four days to change the team, four days to get them playing as a unit. But was that enough time? The touchback was in punch drive and route to Orbital Station 2, home of the Sky Demolition. Quentin shut down the holotank in his room. He'd looked at the demolition defensive players over and over again. Now it was time to put that study into practical use. He headed for the VR practice field. Last night's practice had gone well. The repetitive throws to his receivers had started to give him a better perspective on the speed involved. Practicing with holograms was effective, but a hologram couldn't catch the ball and therefore couldn't give him a truly realistic idea of where to put a ball so that a talented receiver could haul it in. Quentin walked into the VR field expecting to see Denver and Milford. It shocked him to see not only the two rookies, but Haywick and Scarborough as well. In addition, two reserve defensive backs, Saugatuck and Rehabooth, stood ready to play. If Quentin Bards approves, Denver said, with the Scalorno equivalent of a submissive bow, these humble players would like to partake in the receiving of your gifts. Quentin felt slightly embarrassed to see Haywick and Scarborough, two starting receivers. Yet as soon as that feeling crossed his brain, he chased it away. He was the starting quarterback, and he should have asked those two to practice with him from the beginning. The fact that they had come in on their own? Well, that was both emotionally flattering and strategically encouraging. Now he'd have an even more realistic version of a game situation. I approve, Quentin said. Uh, and thank you. Aldous Glorno bowed as one. Quentin smiled as he walked to the rack of footballs, realizing that these teammates, at least, had accepted him as an equal. For Quentin, the days blurred past, a run-on sentence crammed with practice and study with little of the punctuation that sleep would provide. He woke four hours before first meal, studied sky demolition defensive players, formations and plays, then went to eat with the team. He then sat in position meetings with Pine, Yitzhak, and Hokor. Then team practice. Doc had said Pine could dress for the game, but he was not to practice which meant Quentin took 85% of all reps. After practice came second meal, which Quentin now took with the rest of the team. He tried talking to as many teammates as he could. He got the impression his teammates knew he was trying, and it seemed to be making a difference. 
After second meal, he studied some more. When most of the team went to sleep, Quentin set up shop in the VR field. By the third day, every Sklorno on the team was showing up for the late-night sessions. Quentin practiced with three or four receivers, depending on the set, and a full complement of defensive backs. The extra reps proved invaluable, and his timing started to improve, but it was the defenders that really got him over the hump. He could run whatever play he wanted as many times as he wanted, gradually building up an instinctive knowledge of how fast the defenders could break on the ball and how far away they had to be to constitute an open receiver. And he made sure they came at him with plenty of safety and corner blitzes. It would be a long time before Sklorno level speed became second nature to him, the way human level speed had been back on McCovey. But as he ran rep after rep through pass after pass, he regained the belief that he could handle the offense and throw with total confidence. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Quentin had assumed that no construct could be larger than Emperor One. He was wrong. Orbital Station 2, or the Deuce, as it was known across most human worlds, reminded Quentin of an animal he'd seen in his science classes, the sea urchin. The Deuce was spherical, like a moon or a planet, with hundreds of massive, orderly, hollow blue spires jutting up and away from the surface. He looked around the touchback's viewing bay. All of the rookies were there, of course, as they worked to see any new planet. All of the Quith warriors were present as was Hokor, and at least two dozen Quith workers. Quentin hadn't even known that many Quith workers were on the ship. All of them, warriors, leaders, and workers alike, stared at the viewscreen with a suffused reverence. He looked for someone to talk to. Every minute of every day, he tried to find any opportunity to communicate with his teammates, to forge the bonds that Pine said were so critical to winning. He realized he'd spent absolutely no time with Quith warriors. He walked across the viewing deck to stand next to Virak the Mean. Just how big are those things? Quentin asked, gesturing to the urchin spikes that jutted up from the space station. Virak turned and looked at him. A Quith leader's eye is a huge, glassy sphere that looks about as resilient as a giving day tree ornament. A Quith warrior's eye, on the other hand, stares out from beneath thick, bony ridges. Even though a warrior is more than twice the size of a leader, a warrior's eye is about two-thirds the size of a leader's. A heavy eyelid, thick as mason leather and coated with overlapping scales of tough chitin, hooded Virak's eye from the top. Quentin's childhood combat training taught him that the eye was the best place to attack a quith warrior. But combat sins with realistic robots were a long way from facing one in being-to-being combat. Now that he'd seen Quith warriors move in person and on the field, 
the idea of poking out a Quith Warrior's baseball-sized eye seemed much easier said than done. Virak looked at him with a combination of amusement and disdain. Of all the races, the Quith seemed to share the most human-like emotions. When Virak spoke, it was with an air of boredom. They're about two miles long. Two miles? That's amazing. They look so thick to be that tall. The spikes are about an eighth of a mile thick. They are beautiful. Quentin stared at them and nodded. The symmetrical placement of the spikes did give the space station an ironically delicate appearance. The spikes are a life form, Virak said. A silica-based organism that grows in a dense crystalline matrix. They're like bacteria. They grow, they feed, and reproduce in numbers beyond comprehension. Only the outside of the spike is alive. The inside is nothing but dead skeletons, but it is incredibly dense and hard. The crystalline structure gives it the strength to reach such massive heights. What are they for? They serve two purposes. They reach down to the core. We can vent energy through them to propel the station in any direction. They're also the main supports of the Deuce's framework. Crossbeams connect to the spikes. You can see one below the equator, there. Virak pointed. Quentin saw another long green structure, although this one was horizontal rather than vertical. It ran between two spikes. Why is there only one crossbeam? There are thousands of them, but they're buried, Virak said. The deuce is built in stages, and each stage takes several cycles. With that crossbeam in place, workers will add to the station's mass. As Quentin watched, a small, speckle-coated asteroid drifted down between the spike points and towards the surface. It took his brain a second to register the scale involved. The speckles were actually ships, and the asteroid had to be at least ten miles across and five miles thick. As he watched, the speckle ships, which were each probably larger than the touchback, drove the asteroid down. About a half mile from the surface, the speckle ships broke off, flying away from the asteroid like a slow-moving cloud of gnats. The massive rock continued its descent until it smashed into the surface with a huge, billowing cloud of dust and debris. The cloud seemed to hang in the air, floating lightly, pulled back down ever so slowly by the deuce's weak gravity. That's how it gets bigger, Virak said. Each day ships go out and find asteroids. They bring them back here to add to the surface. As the mass continues to grow, so does the gravity, and so does the density of the deuce's core. Additional matter on the surface compresses the core. The original living levels have long since been smashed flat by gravity. Workers constantly dig new levels, creating an exponentially increasing living area to accommodate a high birth rate. Immigration to the orbital stations fell to a near standstill after Wittok and Ionath were colonized. Now those seeking to escape the overpopulation of Quith head to those planets instead of the orbital stations. Quentin stared at the asteroid, a small pebble in a slightly larger crater. Crater and asteroid both barely a pimple on the surface. How long does it take to bring those asteroids in? Virak thought for a moment. It depends on the materials needed. Some trips take only a few months. Others seek out asteroids comprised of rare or vital minerals, such as platinum or iridium. Those missions can take hundreds of years. 
It's common for a crew to leave the Deuce knowing that they will be long dead of old age before the ship returns, and their children, or grandchildren, will pilot the vessel home. How many ships are there? Somewhere around a hundred thousand. A hundred? Just how long does it take to build that thing out there? The Deuce has been growing for almost 300 years, and the Ace is just over 350 years old. Quentin shook his head in amazement. All his life, he'd been told the Quith were only semi-intelligent beasts. Yet here was an engineering project that rivaled the terraforming of Solomon, a race so unified in purpose that they sacrificed themselves to build a home for future generations. It's not that big, Quentin said. I mean, for an artificial construct, it's massive. But from a strategic perspective, I can't see how the Kratorakians could take over entire planets that were 20 times as large but not be able to take over the Deuce. They took over other planets by swarming across the surface and overwhelming the enemy by sheer numbers, Virak said. Here, the surface doesn't support life. They had to fight their way into the shaft to get at the living levels. They tried the same technique they used against the big ships, launching thousands of landing vessels, trying to overwhelm our shaft defenses. We slaughtered their people by the millions. Quentin raised an eyebrow. You sound like you actually fought here or something. I did, Virak said. I was born here. When my time came, I fought not for new breeding grounds, but for defense of my birth home. Virak absently brushed a pedipalp hand across a long list of alien words etched into the chitin of his right arm. What are those? Quentin asked, gesturing to the writing. Names of warriors in my fighting pack. Warriors I had lived with most of my life. They died in the battles. I lost everyone in my fighting pack, but the Kretorakians paid a terrible price for their assault. How many died? Over two million quith, Virak said. Including all my family. We estimate around 22 million Kretorakians died trying to capture the deuce. We kept rough count up to 10 million, but they just kept coming and counting the dead was last on our list of needs. Quentin tried to imagine fighting an enemy without number that came in wave after wave after wave. That many and they never broke through? They eventually created a beachhead on Shaft 2 and Shaft 4. We let them bring in troops and resources. Then we used nuclear weapons to destroy those shafts before they could penetrate further. Eventually... Technologists from Satirly 6 were brought in to engineer a way through the two miles that separated the surface from the living levels. Did they get in? Yes, several times. But we distributed tactical nuclear weapons throughout the deuce. Citizens were under strict orders. At the first sign of a breakthrough, seal off their section and detonate. Quentin's jaw dropped. At first sign? But how long did it take to evacuate the sections before you nuked them? Virak looked back into space. There was no evacuation. Citizens sealed their section, then detonated. How many quith would that kill? Virak thought for a moment. Depending on the section, anywhere from 150,000 to 250,000. It did not matter. As long as the Kretorakians did not establish a beachhead on the living levels from which they could resupply and swarm to the entire station... Any sacrifice was worth it. But to kill a quarter million of your own people? 
It was necessary, Lyrak said. The Kretorakins do not control us. Freedom isn't free. Quentin tried to imagine even the most hardcore holy man pulling the trigger on a nuke that would take out not only him, but 250,000 of his people. We maintain maneuverability, Virag said. As big as it is, the whole station can enter punch space. We move towards the home planet to help defend it. The three orbital stations are more than just ships. They're self-contained ecosystems with planetary-level manufacturing infrastructures and resources that are inexhaustible in the short term. That meant we were moving three full war factories to defend the homeworld. We left the Kretorakians with one choice. Completely destroy the orbital stations, exterminating all life, or fight the ships the stations produced for decades to come. So why didn't they blow up the Deuce and the others? We don't know. Maybe they don't have the technology. Relativity bombs, like the Scorno used on Wittok, would have completely destroyed the Deuce. But the Kretorakians either do not have them or did not use them. It doesn't matter anymore. We beat them back once, we'll beat them back again. The Quith protect their homeworlds. There was more than a hint of condescension in that comment. The Quith who despite their military presence were considered the galaxy's poor cousins of intelligence, had resisted the swarming Kretorakians when all of the superior governments had surrendered. The fact that most of the Quith planets were irradiated wastelands seemed irrelevant, at least to them. The conversation faded away as the touchback maneuvered towards a massive shaft, perhaps two miles wide. Rows of lights ran down the sides, disappearing into the depths, reminiscent of the mine shafts back home. Ships, large and small, flew in and out of the huge opening. As the touchback approached, traffic faded to nothing. Exit traffic ceased, and entry traffic hovered in place. Why is all the shipping stopped? Because they clear everything out when a bus comes in, Lyrak said. They need to prevent possible terrorist attacks. If a ship even gets within a half mile of the team bus, it is destroyed. The touchback descended the shaft, sinking like a pebble into a miles-deep, dark-water chasm. Large ships were docked against greenish projections that jutted out from the walls up and down the length of the shaft. He saw thousands of small ships, but many larger ones as well. Cargo tugs hauling long lines of hexagonal boxes. Space liners sporting sleek lines. Bulky freighters loading or unloading payload to haul to other systems. And something that Quentin had never seen. Warships. There were dozens of warships, big and small, bristling with bulky shield generators and the long, thin, unmistakable shapes of weapons. Quentin felt a shiver, thinking of the days when weapon-loaded ships like these had permeated the universe, fighting and killing more often than not. The touchback slowed, almost imperceptibly. A light, jarring motion indicated they had docked. Beings on first shuttle, move to the landing bay. First shuttle flight leaves in 15 minutes. You come with me, Virax said. But I'm on the third flight. I have more to show you, Virax said. You come with me. Quentin followed the muscular quith warrior from the viewing deck down to the landing bay. He boarded. A few of the veteran starters gave him a quick look, but Mo shrugged, or gave the respective alien equivalent of a shrug, 
and went back to whatever they had been doing. The shuttle slid out of the landing bay and descended the shaft. The shuttle finally slipped past the bottom of the shaft and entered into a cavernous, dome-shaped space. Endless rails of the green crystal ran in curved arms along the dome shell up towards the two-mile-wide shaft mouth, which was also ringed by a thick band of green. Ships, probably personal cars judging from their tiny dimensions, flew in every direction. The air looked crowded with vehicles, but not around the shuttle. Off the port side, he noticed a squat yellow and black ship, lethal-looking and bristling with weapons. It struck him as an artistic impression of a bumblebee crossed with an automated factory robot. He didn't know the reason for its rather unaerodynamic shape, but there was no mistaking the ship was a fighter. He watched the fighter out the window. It matched speed and altitude with the shuttle. Then he noticed another fighter, and another, also matching speed. He looked out the windows on the other side and saw many more. Dozens of mechanical bees formed a sort of protective sphere web with the shuttle at its center. The deuce reminded Quentin of Ionath City and Port Wittock, a huge dome-shaped city. Although this time, the dome was twice as large, at least eight miles in diameter and over two miles high. There was no sprawling city playing away from the downtown. Here, bare rock marked the city's edge. A winding river at this height no more than a blue-green ribbon, ran through the center of the city, emanating from one dome wall and disappearing into another on the far side. This place did not have the fine radial symmetry of Ionath City. Rather, it spread outward from the center, the way a bacteria colony might grow on a petri dish. Orderly, but in a biological fashion, as if it had grown naturally without the guiding hand of a city engineer. Lights glowed from almost every building, adding to the city's biological feel, as if it were a bioluminescent colonial organism in some deep ocean. Roads wound through the city with little more order than the meandering river. How did they put a river in here? Common harvesters, Virax said. Same as the asteroid harvesters. Water is very important for life. Females breed in water. On Ionath and Wittok, we have special water-filled facilities for breeding, but here we can do it naturally, right out in the open like it's done on Quith. The buildings had looked squat from the shaft mouth, but as the shuttle descended, Quentin saw that was just an illusion. The towering, organic-looking hexagonal structures reached to heights of 200 stories and more. The shuttle banked to the left and followed the line of the river. Buildings seemed to link together, their green crystalline structure branching out like neurons to connect to all their neighbors, several times at several heights. The number of buildings, their densely packed proximity, their height, Quentin's head spun with one obvious question. How many beings live on the deuce? The last census puts us somewhere around 742 million. It's not as open as Ionath City but it's not nearly as crowded as the home world. All in a space less than half the size of the Earth's moon. The Quith homeworld was only slightly larger than Earth, and populated with 72 billion Quith. The race seemed to have mastered dense population living. The shuttle dropped to 100 feet above the water as the river banked sharply to the right. Around that bend lay Demolition Stadium. 
a smaller affair than its counterparts on Ionath and Wittok. It had purple seats 500 rows high, running parallel to each sideline. Demolition Stadium looked kind of like a freeze-frame sculpture of a thick book being closed. Both end zones were open, free of the towering bleachers, which rose at such a steep angle, Quentin wondered how anyone could climb the steps. The field surface was a pale, milky white, with yard markers written in a deep blue. The surface is Tyrolac, Virac said. Very springy and giving. Soft surface cuts down injuries, but stains jerseys badly. A multi-shaded purple building dominated one end zone, while a platform of some kind dominated the other. The shuttle set down on the purple building. Virac turned to Quentin and grabbed one arm with a pedipalp. Quentin managed not to wince at the painful grab. He knew the full strength of a quith warrior, and this grab was not meant to hurt. You watch yourself, Virag said. Orbital stations are a lot older than Ionath City. Races have mingled here for centuries. This is one of the few places in the galaxy that there are no Kratorakian soldiers, so a lot of criminal elements come and go, or just come and stay. So why don't your people do something about it? For a long time, it was difficult to trade with other systems. No one wanted to bother with the quit. Smugglers brought in many goods, and they needed a place to hide out. And when the war came, they fought and died along with us. For that, we leave them be as long as they don't make too much trouble. Quentin noted the phrase, too much trouble, as opposed to, as long as they don't make any trouble. As he disembarked onto the roof of the purple building, he wondered what kind of activities might fall under the threshold of too much trouble. Just be careful, Byrex said, as the races moved to their separate locker rooms. And you do best just to keep to yourself. You have been listening to The Rookie, Season 1 of the Galactic Football League Series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar, with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song, The Kids Are Coming For You, by the band Super Weapon. Superweaponband.com. You're trying to say I'm putting the air The kids are coming for you Nothing you can do They're coming for you Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. 
the team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.